what I want to do is use Romans chapter 8 as a little bit of a launching point for us. Something that we see in Romans chapter 8. Turn there real quickly, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in the book of Philippians, both written by Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 8, Paul presents what a dichotomy of either thinking in the flesh or thinking in the spirit. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 8 says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now, in this verse, we see, if you want to guess the level of nerddom in, in someone's life, ask them if they have a favorite Greek word. This is probably my favorite Greek word. Phreneo is this word that we hear, setting your mind on it. And the reason I love this word so much is it's, it's so descriptive that it is literally, it's a way of thinking that leads to a way of living. So if you think in this way, you will then live in this way. You understand? It's not just thinking and it stops there and it doesn't move to the heart. That this thinking moves all the way to the feet and to the hands and it leads to a way of living. In this verse... Verse 5, he says, those who live according to the flesh, those have their minds on the things of the flesh. It's obvious here that if you're thinking in terms of the flesh, you will then do the things of the flesh. And vice versa, if you are thinking in the way of the spirit, you will do the things of the spirit. Now, this word for neo is used 26 times in the New Testament. 26 times. And it's no real surprise that in Romans 12 through 15, we're going to see it four times. So in 2022, when we get to (laughs) Romans 12, we will see phreneo throughout those verses, those passages. It's not a surprise because in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is laying out a doctrine of our salvation, the doctrine of God interceding and God's justification in history. Then in chapters 12 to the end, he is now talking about now you think on these things, now you act on these things. Now you live in this way. And that's when he starts using the word phreneo in the book of Romans. We also interestingly see two of the times, I don't have to turn there, but the same account shared in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark. We see that Christ rebukes Peter after Peter tells Christ that he should not suffer and be killed. And Christ says to him, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. You're not thinking in terms of God. If you were thinking in terms of God, you wouldn't be telling me this. But we're having this conversation because you're setting your mind, the way that you're operating your mind is leading you to this fear, is leading you to say this. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we see the word phreneo more than in the book of Philippians. Of the 26 times that Phreneo appears in the New Testament, 11 are in the book of Philippians. So that's significant. When we're looking through and making observations on a text, uh, whether it be a smaller text or a larger text, we want to look for repeated themes, phrases, words. So when we see those repeated words and phrases, we know that the author's trying to communicate something. There are a few repeated words or phrases throughout the book of Philippians, rejoicing be one that we'll talk about a little bit later, unity being another, and and this idea of phreneo being another. Let's turn to the book of Philippians, 
as we, uh, as we continue our time this morning. And I want to try to flush out this theme of phreneo through the book of Philippians. And then we're going to settle down in chapter 4 to talk about how this is lived out in the life of a believer. So before we continue any further, please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Father, I thank you for the opportunity, God, to come before these people, before you, Lord, to open up your word. God, I pray that it would have its perfect work and accomplish it within us, Lord. Uh, we pray for Pastor Rag. We pray that you will heal him quickly and that he will be able to turn to the service here, Lord, and to, to proclaim your word and that the fire that is burning within him would continue to be stoked and contained until he is able to, to make it back to continue to serve us uh, through the presentation of your word, Lord, and pray that you would heal him in, to that direction, Lord. But this morning, Lord, we pray that you would be honored, that we would learn to think in a new way, Lord, so that we may better live, live and serve you. We pray it's your name. Amen. Here in Philippians, the first use of the word phreneo is in verse 7. Here, Paul is validated in his feelings for the Philippians, for the, the believers of the church at Philippi, because of their proper standing before God and their partnership with him in his ministry. What we're going to do, I'm just going to kind of skim through. You don't have to try to catch up because I want to make sure we save enough time for the actual passage that, uh, that we want to spend our time in. Then we see in chapter 2, the passage that I had Randy share with us, uh, read this morning, that we are urged to have the same mind that Christ had. That's the word phreneo, that we're to have the same mind of Christ. And what mind did Christ have? He humbled himself. He served. He did not consider equality of God something to be held on to, but he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. And we are called to have that same mind in Jesus, that Jesus did those things because he thought in that way. And that is, again, to be translated down to us. Then we see in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. Let us think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you also. He's saying, let us continue thinking in this way. Let us live in this way. He's saying, let us live in light of the doctrines that I'm sharing with you. In light of the truth that has been revealed, let us now live, let us think in that way. For Paul, the process of becoming more Christ-like begins in the mind, in our way of thinking. It's impossible for us to divorce our mind from our behavior. You can't separate the two. And of course, God has been saying this throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's never been about the outward actions. Even back in the presentation of the law, it was always about what you believe in your heart. Who do you worship in your heart? It's always been about the heart. It's never been about just the actions. It's always been about the function of the mind and the heart. Well, as Paul is preparing to close this epistle to the Philippians, he returns to the importance of their thinking when it comes to the way that they live in this world. So now turn to chapter 4. And we're going to pick up in verse 4 through 7. And we see here that Paul is going to present three mindsets. Paul's going to present three mindsets for all believers to choose in order to adopt the mind of Christ. So these are three mindsets that we are to choose. That this is a choice as a believer, post-justification, 
with the service of the Holy Spirit. These are mindsets that, it, that we must choose to exercise. I say choose because ultimately these mindsets are established by choosing to think this way. They don't come naturally to us. You don't wake up one day and decide, I'm not going to have anxiety. It just doesn't, that doesn't come naturally. That is, that is a function, a result of God working in your heart and you choosing to think in obedience in those ways. Instead of listening to ourselves, what we must do is preach to ourselves. We preach to ourselves rather than listening to the voice of doubt inside of us. We preach truth to ourselves and then we think in that manner. We think in those li- along those lines. And then we exhort ourselves to think in a way that is Christ-like and Christ-honoring. So the first mindset that we must choose to exercise is we must choose joy. Choose joy. We see in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Very simple phrase, very simple statement. Nothing really too complicated about that. This isn't a phrase that we really need to go to the the commentaries. We need to open up the Greek language. We need to really spend some time diagramming this. It's, It's pretty simple, right? What's the point? The point is to rejoice. The point is just to rejoice. And this has been a theme throughout the book of Philippians. This this rejoicing is a state of happiness and well-being. It's contentment in the circumstances that God has you in. It's not dependent upon the circumstances. It's dependent upon the knowledge and the trust and the faith exercised in the God who has you in those circumstances. And we know that this theme of joy is woven throughout the book of Philippians. I'm just going to real quickly go through this list. You don't have to turn to these passages, but just follow along and listen. In chapter 1, verse 4, we see that Paul is joyfully praying for the believers. In 1, verse 18, he's rejoicing regarding the preaching of Christ. 125, joy is a sign of growth in Christ. Also in 125, that joy is the goal of ministry. 2, 2, finding joy in unity with one another. 2.17, rejoicing in light of suffering and trials. 2.18, rejoicing in seeing the faithfulness of a brother. We also see that in 2.28. 2.29, we find joy in the spiritually faithful. 3.1 and 4.4, we rejoice in the knowledge of and in knowing the Lord. 4.4, we rejoice in Rejoicing is a theme, or should be a theme, of our life. For one, finding joy in the loving fellow believers. Also, finding joy in being eternally minded. And for ten, rejoicing in seeing a passion for ministry in fellow believers. We see that all through this book, Paul is continuing the theme time and time again to rejoice. And what do we find our joy in? We find our joy in so many different things. In the faithfulness of others, joy in unity, joy in salvation, joy in knowing that we have a place in God's eternal program, in his eternal plan. And he's given us examples, some of them autobiographical, to find joy in. And we must remember at this point, Paul's in jail. He's writing this from prison. And he's exhorting them and encouraging them to exercise a spirit of joy. 
And I know last week in Sunday school, I'm not able to be upstairs in Sunday school because I'm downstairs with the little kiddos. But I know last week I in, in the, had a conversation with a couple people in Sunday school. There was a, an encouraging conversation that happened surrounding the concept of joy as a proof of salvation in the life of a believer and seeing the evidence of joy lived out. That joy should be something that doesn't have to be necessarily worked at to be produced, but something that is clearly evident in the life of a believer. But we do have to choose joy sometimes. That joy isn't oftentimes the natural reaction that our heart should produce. There is no circumstance in which rejoicing isn't an option. There's not a circumstance in our life in which joy is not the option that we should choose. It is a choice that we make in our reaction to everything that happens. It's not just finding the silver lining, being a glass half full, an optimist kind of person. It's not just about being a pie in the sky optimist. It's finding joy in what we know to be true about God, not in what the circumstances are. It's looking above the circumstances and knowing that we have a God who is in control and a God who has a plan, a God who is serving his purposes and a God who is faithful and loving. And that is what we are to rejoice in. We rejoice in the Lord. He is the cause of our rejoicing. He gives us the ability to rejoice that if you didn't have the Lord in your life, if Christ had not intervened into your life while we were still sinners, we wouldn't have the option to rejoice. There would be no cause for joy. Everything would be futile. The best case scenario would be to be an optimist that had glass half full, but without having any reason to think that way. We also know that Christ has a purpose and a plan for our lives, that he sees that all circumstances work together for the good of those who love him. Romans chapter 8, as we just had uh, studied a, a month ago or so. So he is the cause for our joy. He is also the subject of our joy. He's the theme of our joy. The theme of our song, the theme of our joy is our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that the joy here is not something that is found in the circumstances, in a job, in a relationship, in a car, in a thing, in a raise, whatever it might be. The joy is not found in those circumstances, but it's found in the Lord. It's found in the author of our salvation. And how often do we rejoice? What is the extent of of our exercising of this joy, what does he say? Always. And then he says it again. Again, I say rejoice. You remember your parent teaching you, instructing you, telling you repeatedly to do something. They tell you repeatedly to do something because what? Because it's important. Because they want you to understand. You exercise the same instruction to your children as Paul is instructing us. It's a repeated word or phrase because he wants us to understand this. He wants us to exercise it. He says, rejoice, choose joy. So what we must do is make it a habit of our lives to understand what should we find joy in. To think, to freneto on those things. If you find that your life is generally one that may lack joy, 
then let me suggest that your mind is not set on Christ. It's not set on joy. It's not set on the truth of the gospel. Because if your mind, if you are freneoing, to combine two languages, if you are freneoing, if you're thinking in a proper way according to the Spirit, then you will find multitude of reasons to exercise joy, to find joy in circumstances that no one else could. To find joy in a circumstance where everyone else would find a reason to mourn, a reason to, to be disturbed, a reason to be upset. So we rejoice. The first, the first mindset that we are to choose to exercise is joy. The second one we see in verse 5. The second one is that we are to choose gentleness. Choose gentleness. Verse 5, again, another, another very easy statement that doesn't take a lot of exegeting. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And this idea of reasonableness, it's gentleness. It's being gracious and forbearing, mild and gentle. It's a humble, patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred and malice because you're trusting in God in spite of the circumstances. Let me say that again. This is a humble and patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, or maltreatment without hatred and malice because you're trusting in God in spite of it all. Now, about five years ago, six years ago, my wife and I bought our first home. It was about this time of year, a little bit later. We had just gotten home from our Easter service. My dad and I stepped on the back deck, and I'm looking out, and you know, you're like enjoying the, the thaw, the snow melting away. I'm like, yeah, look at the faithfulness of God. Look at, look at what God has given us. Look at the goodness of God's provision. And I looked over on the side of my yard, and part of it was dug up. Who dug up my yard? Like, what is that about? And, and my dad and I are looking, and like, because the snow had just melted. It's like, that wasn't there before. And so I called the previous homeowner, and after some time and examining it and thinking about it and talking with other people, I called the original homeowner and said, is there a reason why part of my backyard is dug up? Anything that you might know? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's where the neighbor keeps their garden. Okay, time out. What? <laughs> what? That's where the neighbor keeps their garden? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's not your land. Time out. Time out. Let's back the truck up a little bit. I don't own that land because when I went and we looked at the property, they said, hey, see that tree line? That's your property line. Well, turns out that's not the property line. Turns out it's 10 feet on the other side of that property line and that our neighbor insisted on growing a garden on our side of the trees rather than on their side of the trees. This was a time for me to breathe. Okay, I've clearly been wronged. I've been deceived. I've been misled. I've invested a lot of money into this property, and now I have a stranger gardening in my backyard. <laughs> the American side of me wanted to go and poison the ground. The American side of me wanted to put up a giant fence so that no sun could hit the garden. 
you want to exercise your property rights. This is my land. I have invested in this. How dare someone betray that confidence? And I had to calm down and had to choose to think biblically about it. Uh, I think it was my son who had said, well, if we built a fence, how could we share the gospel with them? <laughs> and so then it was, okay, well, this is clearly not how I would choose it, but guess what? Now we have a neighbor coming to our own backyard, and we can have that interaction with them, and we can grow that relationship with them. And uh, it has certainly been a process of time to get that relationship, and it turned out that the the previous owner and our neighbor did not necessarily get along together, and it seems that the location of the garden was probably chosen out of spite uh, to, to get back at the previous homeowner. But it was one of those times where we needed to choose gentleness when everything within us wanted to scream injustice and wanted to scream that I am not being treated fairly right now. This is wrong. And we need to choose to exercise gentleness. At a future time, I would encourage you to go to the Acts chapter 16. It tells the account of Paul visiting the city of Philippi. And see the gentleness that Paul exercised in his ministry to the church at Philippi. He showed compassion and gentleness to a slave girl. He showed compassion and gentleness to a jailer. And then the jailer, led to the Lord, exercises that compassion back to them when there was an earthquake and Paul does not flee. Paul doesn't leave the jail and the jailer's just about to run himself through. Paul says, don't, we're still here. Don't worry about it. The jailer throws himself down, repents, believes, and he washes their wounds because they were beaten first before they were thrown into jail. He is broken and humbled, and he washes their wounds. Then he takes them to his own home to feed them and introduces them to his own family. You see, it's just a radical transformation of a life of a jailer who at one point was having guard and may have been involved in the beating of Paul, we don't know, now to the point of, He's cleaning the wounds and feeding him and bringing him into his own home, his own house. Because that's the effect that the gospel has on someone. It changes your heart. The gospel changes lives. It produces a gentleness where there isn't any gentleness. It says, let your reasonableness be known. I warned Misty yesterday about this. That this is my second favorite Greek word. <laughs> So if, if there is a greater sign of being a nerd, you actually have a list and a ranking of favorite Greek words. In second place, you have gnosko. Gnosko. There are multiple words that you can use for no. This is an experiential knowledge. An experiential knowledge. And the illustration I've used before, and it seems to, to work and help people understand, is there anyone in the room presently, not to put you on the spot, who has not had one of Missy's cinnamon rolls? Anyone? Jessica? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay, so what I could do is I could explain to you that it is 
soft and supple. It is sweet, and the frosting is perfect, and the location of the cinnamon is perfectly spread throughout the dough, and it is just the perfect, and you put a little bit of warmth on it, it is the perfect pastry. And I could communicate that to you, but you don't gnosko. You don't gnosko. You oida right now. That's the other Greek word for no. You oida. You, you know, you understand logically. Logically. But if then I went <laughs> and I said, you must gnosko the cinnamon roll. So then you take a bite of Missy's cinnamon rolls for the first time. Now you gnosko. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. We got a thumbs up. You gnosko because you experientially know it. And in this circumstance, he says, let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known to everyone. So in order for your gentleness to be known to everyone, what must happen? They must experience it. It is not a theoretical knowledge where it says, I think that person could be gentle. I think that person has the capacity of gentleness within them. It is no. I can look and I can say, look at the way they treated me. Look at the way they responded when they were treated unjustly. Look at the the gentleness that they exercised. Look at Paul, who was beaten and thrown into jail and still had compassion for the jailer. Paul's gentleness was made known to everyone. It was experientially known. Now, this was contra-culture for this time and place, particularly because the city of Philippi was founded to give retired soldiers a place to live. And when you were a Roman soldier, part of the gig was that you would get land. They needed to found cities in order to give them a place to live. So imagine taking an entire city of retired soldiers and plopping them down in one place. Probably not oozing gentleness. Probably not like the most gentle place, uh, the the city of, of brotherly love. Not so much. Probably a little bit rough around the edges. People who are used to dealing with things and solving problems physically. Not a whole, not a real gentle crowd. So we must choose to exercise gentleness. Even when we feel wronged, even when we feel held down, we must choose to exercise gentleness. Here, right after this phrase, we see a little parenthetical, little statement here. It says, the Lord is at hand. Syntactically, you can't really connect this to either the previous phrase or the phrase after. In the Greek, you can't really attach it to one or the other. It kind of is sitting there as a statement of truth. So really, it's kind of a a statement that applies to all of it. That because we are to choose joy, we are to choose gentleness, and to ruin the, the third one, we are to choose trust, all of these things, because the Lord is at hand. Because the Lord is near. Because he is near spatially. Christ is with us. God is with us. Because his return is imminent. That this applies, the, the idea of the Lord being at hand, that it is, it is the same result of thinking that drove 
Jonathan Edwards. He was resolved to never do anything for which he would be ashamed to do were at the last moment of his life. Were Christ about to return. Were Christ to return at that moment, he did not want to be doing anything for which he would be ashamed if Christ returned. That's the mentality here. Third, third mindset to choose. Third mindset. We choose trust. This mindset, this exhortation comes in two commands, a positive and a negative. The first one is a negative command. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. We're great at being anxious. We're, we're good at being anxious. If there was like an anxious badge, we'd be great at earning them. <laughs> we'd be like working at TGIF Fridays. We'd have flair all over us, anxiety badges all over the place. We find a lot to be anxious about. One commentator said that this is a harassing care of attempting to carry the burden of the future self. It's trying to carry your own future burdens now. And we know that this anxiety is futile for the future, which we think that we can provide for, isn't even in our hands. We can't control the future. We know that. Now, there's a a movie that was made a few years ago that I'm often reminded of. It's called Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks. And it's this thriller. They go back and forth, and there's this Russian spy that gets captured. And he's trying to negotiate back and forth with the Russian government. It's during the Cold War, post-World War II. He captures this spy, and the spy is very calm throughout the whole thing. And he knows that when he gets returned to the the Russian government, that he's probably going to be put to death because he was a spy who got caught. And they don't treat those people very well. But they wanted to do a trade because the Americans wanted to get someone back in return. Tom Hanks' character keeps asking him, aren't you worried? Aren't you worried? Aren't you worried? And his response was always, would it help? Would it help? I think about that often when I'm tempted to worry, would it help? And it's not even avoiding the anxiety because you realize that anxiety isn't productive at all. That's not the reason why we don't worry. We don't avoid anxiety because we realize it's unproductive. We avoid anxiety because we realize we have a God who's in control. Anxiety is a natural reaction for a sinful and untrusting human heart to uncertain circumstances in life. We as Americans collect things, we gather things that we can then be more worried about and suffer more anxiety about. And our culture is filled with things that are designed to take our eyes off of our Savior and onto something or someone for the dependence that should be reserved for Christ. Rather than being anxious, he says, but, this is the the Greek word Allah, it is the strongest contrast possible. But, the total opposite of that, two completely different ideas. So the complete opposite of being anxious, of suffering from anxiety, is what? What is the opposite in this passage of anxiety? It's prayer. It's prayer. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Yes, be thankful. In everything, in prayer and supplication, be thankful. These two things, we know they're opposites. 
opposing ideas. If one is present, it's because the other is not. So if you are experiencing anxiety, it's because you are not praying. You're not trusting. You're not exercising prayer, thankfulness, supplication. 1 Peter 5, 7, that we cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares. It would be enough to say, cast all your anxieties upon God because he has a plan. Because he is in control. Because he is powerful. Cast all your anxieties upon God because he cares for you. And it is true that he is all powerful and he is in control and he has a plan. But it's made that much more richer because he cares for you. This idea of prayer, supplication, they're synonymous ideas. It's just simply having a conversation with God and requests of God. It's going to God with those concerns. One commentator says, it shows that to cast one's care on God does not mean to think of him as the one who guarantees one's wishes, but to see in him the one who knows what we need better than we do ourselves. These exhortations to prayer are thus designed to give absolute freedom from care and anxiety because God knows what we need more than we do. God knows better than we do. We didn't get what we wanted or something happened that we didn't want to happen. Praise God. He knows better than I do. Our anxiety is often based upon our limited knowledge of a situation. We're finite creatures. We can't see tomorrow, let alone five minutes from now. This is why God trained the people of Israel to depend on him for their daily bread. And Jesus echoed in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And he was very specific to Israel. I'm not going to give you tomorrow's bread today. I'm going to give you today's bread today. And you depend on me for that. How are we to do this? We are to do this with thanksgiving. Now, how important is thanksgiving? If you went all the way back, don't turn there. But in Romans chapter 1, one of the foundational failures of mankind is failing to be thankful to God. Mankind isn't thankful to God. They did not honor him or give thanks. It says in Romans 1.21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. One commentator followed me. There's a little bit of a, a long quote here, but it's a good one. To begin by praising God for the fact that in this situation as it is, he is so mightily God. Such a beginning is the end of anxiety. To be anxious means that we ourselves suffer, ourselves groan, ourselves seek to see ahead. Thanksgiving means giving God the glory in everything, making room for him, casting our cares on him, letting it be his care. The troubles that exercise us then cease to be hidden and bottled up, and they are, so to speak, laid open to God, spread out before him. Because he cares for us. Because he cares for us, as it says in First Peter. Paul has already exercised this and shown this to them in his own life. Paul exercised this, chapter 1, by finding thankfulness for his own imprisonment. He's in jail and he's finding reasons to be thankful. In chapter 2, he finds reasons for thankfulness in the face of potential martyrdom. 
in the face of his own potential death, he's finding reasons to be thankful before God. And then if, if, as if you, we don't need this, but it gets better because he gives a promise. What is the promise? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God is not phased by what's going on in our life. God doesn't see the circumstances of life and say, whoa, I didn't expect that. Time to come up with a plan B. But God's not phased by these circumstances in our life. Through the events of humanity, the throne of God remains unchanged and unchallenged. This is the exact opposite of anxiety. It is a known order. It is something solid that can be trusted in and relied upon. It is drawing assurance from our relationship with God. It surpasses all understanding. Literally, it rises above every mind. That there isn't a person alive that could begin to comprehend the peace of God that he gives to you. It surpasses all understanding. God's peace is able to produce exceedingly better results than human planning. Or that it is far superior to any person's schemes for security. Or that it is more effective for removing anxiety than any intellectual effort or power of reasoning that we could produce. That is what the peace of God accomplishes within us. It is truly taking on the mind of Christ. God has a plan that surpasses anything we could predict or plan. And again, this is where our theology leads directly to our doxology, our way of worshiping him. Now this idea will guard us. This is a military term. To keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from flight that idea surrounding it guards us and it guards our hearts and our minds our emotions and our thinking the true battlefield for the believers in our own hearts james makes that clear to us proverbs makes that clear to us he does all of this in christ jesus the wrong thing for us to do as we see this passage the wrong the wrong reaction for us to have is to say well time to try harder Try to get some more sheer determination and get better results. That's not going to get you anywhere. (laughs) That's not going to get you anywhere. These commands are only capable of being followed because of what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. The obedience and blessing both come through Christ. It's all accomplished by Christ. Before Paul lists these things, he tells the Philippians, we had read this earlier, Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within us. How do we accomplish these mindsets? First of all, we must believe that the promises of Scripture are true. These are frenetoing things. You must think in this way to live in this way. You must believe and take full belief and trust that the promises that God has passed down in Scripture are true. Then you can choose joy. Then you can choose gentleness. Then you can choose trust. When you believe these things, then the theology is not just some written word on a paper but it is exercised through the worship of a loving and thankful heart. Second, we must saturate our minds with Scripture. 
Scripture promises to make the simple-minded man wise. It teaches us righteousness and holiness. That you begin to think in that way because you are bathed in Scripture, because you meditated on it day and night. It's a simple idea, but it's one still that we struggle with. Third, we must pray. We must pray. A prayer-patterned life leads to a radical shift in perspective. You struggle with anxiety, with worry, then it's because you're not casting your cares upon Christ. You're not going to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And fourth, we must look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. And what I want to do in closing is just read for you how Christ is the example that we need to follow with these three mindsets. That's been the point all along, is that Christ is the example that came before us to show us how to do these things. So how did Christ, how did Christ exercise joy? How about Hebrews 12.2? You want to blow your mind? Read Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Joy sent Christ to the cross. Joy sent Christ to the cross. He despised the shame and now is seated at the right hand of God. Christ exercised joy. His greatest joy was to be obedient to the will of God his Father. And his greatest joy was to provide a way for justification, for the glory of his Father. How does he exemplify gentleness? The Gospels are full of this. He touched the leper. He had compassion on the cripple. He dined with the scum of society. He called the simple-minded to follow him. He fed the thousands, cast out demons out of the helpless, made time for the children, wept for the unbelieving, assured the thief on the cross, thought of his mother while he was hanging on the cross, and then forgave the mob for they did not know what they were doing. That is the gentleness that we must strive for, that we must seek to, to live in whatever context God has us in, the gentleness of Christ. And finally, trust, trust. How did Christ exercise trust? Whenever Christ was tempted to anxiety, to be overwhelmed at the presence of circumstances, it was to his Father that he turned to pray. Even Christ, throughout his ministry, needed to retreat to pray. Christ, fully God and fully man, retreated to pray. Faced with the most dire circumstance that he had been living and leading his entire life towards. In that moment when he was troubled in the garden, he prayed. It was to God that he turned to for peace. Do you think you're above that? Do you think you don't need that? If Christ needed that in that moment, how much more do we need that? We need that peace. So we need to be about pursuing that in prayer, individually and corporately. Now, God has done an amazing thing in us, and our minds that were once dedicated to hostility and rebellion and alienation are now turned towards God. And now we can praise God and honor him in our thinking, in our way of thinking that leads to a way of living. And I encourage you folks, I encourage you, 
These things are what we must meditate on. These are the truths that when we think this way, we will then live this way as Paul instructed us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word, Lord. I thank you for its own work in my own heart, Lord, and the encouragement it's brought me. God, I pray that we would be a people who are encouraging each other to think in a particular way, in a biblical way, in a, in a way that is pleasing to you, Lord, to think on these things, to choose joy, to choose gentleness, to choose trust, that these would be the subjects on our mind so that they should be the way of our life and the way of our living so that you may be honored and you may be glorified and that the world can know and see in us the living truth of the gospel and then in turn bring you glory. Praise your name.